Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, and welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, Episode 9, Pre-Columbian Caribbean. Last episode, we looked at the Chibcan language family. We covered Central America and the Chibcan-speaking Tyrona people of Northern Colombia. Today, we'll start by looking at another Chibcan-Colombian people, the Muisca. We will also discuss another historic civilization found in the country before moving on to Venezuela and the Caribbean. As always, if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to get in touch at historyoflatinamericapodcast at gmail.com or to leave a comment on the Facebook page. Around the same time that the Tyrona were thriving on Colombia's northern coastline, in the interior, another group, the Muisca, were in control. They occupied the mountainous region, right in the centre of modern Colombia. This is the area which has become the nation's heartland today. In fact, the name of Colombia's capital, Bogotá, takes its name from a Muisca word, which means planted fields. The plateau on which it sits was the Muisca breadbasket. It is thought that the Muisca first immigrated into the area between 500 and 800 BC. While they formed one cultural and ethnic group, they were not united into one nation. That said, although they were made up of many different tribes, they did come together to form a loose confederation. This gave them increased military and political clout, but allowed each tribe to maintain a degree of independence. The confederation had two overall leaders, one in the north and one in the south. These positions were hereditary, but succession was not patrilineal, that is, passed down from father to son. Instead, power was passed to the nephew. Below these two were the individual tribal leaders, or caciques. As a side note, I should mention now that cacique is a generic term for leader in the Caribbean and Colombia. It is in no way specific to the Muisca. Muisca society had a developed economy. Amongst other things, they engaged in salt production, farming and mining. One Spanish visitor noted that they were more traders than warriors. As their lands encompassed a variety of different altitudes, they were able to grow a variety of different foods. This provided them with a balanced diet, as well as a surplus which could be traded. Their women produced ceramics and textiles, which were also sold to neighbouring peoples. In this region of Colombia, there are large deposits of emeralds, coal and copper, the Muisca mined, worked and sold all of them. There is also gold to be found within their territory. It's from these people that the legend of El Dorado has its origin. 
El Dorado came to mean the mythical city of gold for which the Spanish searched. However, when translated literally, it means the golden one, as in a person. Muisca leaders had a tradition of covering themselves in gold dust and then washing it off in a sacred lake. This was a way of honouring one of their goddesses who was believed to live there. Other native peoples recounted this ritual to the Spanish, who were shocked that gold would be wasted in this way. They came to the conclusion that the Muisca people must have so much gold they could afford to throw it away. This quickly developed into the myth of a city made of gold. Unfortunately for them, the large deposits they were looking for were not to be found in Muisca territory. Only modest amounts could be found there. Much of the gold they did have was turned into beautiful jewellery and artwork. Some of the best examples can be seen in the Gold Museum in Bogotá. If you're there, this is worth a look. The Muisca were master artisans. Gold, then, to the Muisca was linked to their religious beliefs. We do know a little bit about Muisca religion, and we can name some of their gods. Chiminigagua was the creator god, the supreme being. He represented light, and by bringing light to the darkness, he created the world. He then created the other gods. It was these gods who were worshipped. Chaminigagua was never directly venerated himself. The two most important of these deities were Sue, the sun god, and Chia, the moon goddess. You may remember that the Aztecs believed that the sun and the moon were locked in a constant battle. The Muisca believed the opposite. Sue and Chia were married. By following each other around the sky, they represented unity and balance. Sue was the patron god of the northern Muisca and they paid special attention to him. Likewise, Chia performed the same role for the southern Muisca. Other gods included Bachue, who gave birth to humanity before turning into a snake and disappearing into a lake. Huitaka, the goddess of pleasure who was turned into an owl for rebelling against the other gods. And Chibchakum, the wrathful god of thunder and flooding. He was forced to carry the earth on his shoulders, just like Atlas in Greek mythology. There was a noble class of priests who were trained to lead their people in religious matters. Just like with the Tyrona, at a young age they were taken to live in seclusion and to learn the ways of the priests. They would organise and perform the rituals, and often these would take place at one of two great temples. There was a temple of the sun in the north, and a temple of the moon in the south. Ceremonies would also take place at sacred natural places, such as rivers or woods. Lakes and lagoons were especially sacred, hence the El Dorado ritual. Sacred objects known as tunjos would also be thrown into these lakes. These were normally small carved statues of gods, animals or people. Also like the Tyrona, they consumed coca. They also used tobacco and yapo in their ceremonies. Yapo is a local drug, which amongst other things contains DMT. Human sacrifice was also part of Muisca religious life. Occasionally a family would be chosen to give up their young child to the gods. This child would then be well looked after and considered sacred until the age of 15 when they were finally sacrificed. This was considered to be a great honour for both the child and his or her family. Now we know this took place, but by the time the Spanish arrived it seems the Muisca had given it up of their own accord. What prompted this change is unknown. 
Rituals often took place on holy days, and to determine when these were, the Muisca developed a complex calendar. Most calendars are determined by the movement of either the sun or the moon. Ours is a solar calendar, whereas the Islamic one is lunar. The Muisca calendar, on the other hand, used both. There were three different types of year. Common years, holy years and rural years. Each of these was composed of a different number of months and therefore had a different length. The different types of year would alternate and a century was made up of 20 holy years. This equals around 60 of our years. In order to use this calendar, the Muisca developed a hieroglyphic writing system. Interestingly, this was not used for words or letters, only numbers. Theirs was, like ours, a decimal system, that is, based on the number 10. 20 was considered a special number, probably because this is the full number of fingers and toes. The calendar also demonstrates that the Moisca were keen astronomers. Houses and temples were built on an east-west orientation, in order to line up with the sun and the moon. The Temple of the Sun was built in such a way that on the 22nd of December, the solstice, the light of the sun would shine directly onto its central pillar. There is another site, El Infianito, which consists of lines of standing stones. On certain days, these line up with the sun and the moon, and it's thought that this helped them keep track of their calendar. It was basically their version of our paper calendars, but laid out physically using stones. El Infianito roughly translates as the Little Hell. It was named this by the Spanish, who equated this pagan belief system with devil worship. It is evident, then, that the Muisca were a fairly advanced people. Some historians even go as far as to claim that there were four developed civilizations in the pre-Columbian Americas. They placed the Muisca in this category, alongside the Aztecs, the Maya, and the Inca. I personally agree with this assessment, I think the Muisca deserve credit for their achievements. I find the notion of there being four advanced civilizations problematic, however. I think that some of the other Mesoamerican civilizations, such as the Zapotec at Monte Alban or Teotihuacan, deserve a look-in. Before moving on, I want to mention one more interesting side note about the Muisca. One of their most enduring legacies is the game of Tejo, this is a recreational activity still enjoyed in Colombia today. It is a bit like the French game of balls. Metal discs are thrown underarm towards a target about 20 metres away. The target is a small ramp-like structure of raised mud. Once the Spanish arrived, naturally gunpowder was added so that when you successfully hit the target, it creates a small explosion. They take Tejo quite seriously in Colombia, there are professional teams and tournaments. Many of these are sponsored by beer companies, and it wouldn't be a game without liberal amounts of drink consumed by both the players and the observers. This has created some controversy in recent years, as people worry about the corporatization of the game. Others point out that it might not be the best idea to have drunk people throwing around heavy metal discs and playing with gunpowder. There was one more major culture in Colombia. They left behind some impressive archaeological evidence to prove their existence, but we know nothing about who they were, where they came from, or how they lived. They are known simply as the San Agustin culture, 
because this is the nearest town to their most important site. Our lack of knowledge presents me with a bit of a problem. These people are definitely worthy of a detailed overview, but it's very difficult for me to give you one. All I can really do is describe the archaeological sites they've left behind. As I have visited their two main ones, I've decided to tell this in the form of a personal anecdote. In doing so, I will hopefully provide as much information as possible about this historical culture, as well as providing an insight into modern Colombia. As I mentioned, these people left us two main archaeological sites, and both are UNESCO World Heritage listed. These can be found in the mountains of southern Colombia. The northern one is called Tierra Dentro. This can be found in the department of Cauca, and it's about five or six hours bus ride from the city of Popayán. The ride there is spectacular. The bus weaves its way through the remote, dramatic mountains of this region. The landscapes are classic Colombia. As you approach the end of your journey, you pass through the small town of Inza, a beautiful place perched on the side of a mountain. The bus stops for a few minutes in the central plaza to drop people off. About 20 minutes later, you reach the small hamlet of Tierra nestled within a steep valley. The bus continues along the main road, so you must walk another 20 minutes to reach the village centre. There is only one place to stay, and I was the only guest there. After putting my stuff down in my room, I went to explore the village. There weren't many people around, but in the main square I came across three uniformed soldiers carrying M16 rifles. Fish and chips, they kept saying to me in English, after learning where I was from. We were in front of an interesting whitewashed church with a thatched roof. I've not seen this style anywhere else in Latin America. I said goodbye to the soldiers and set off to find the ruins. There are several sites laid out along the sides of the valley. It takes quite a while to walk between them. Most of these sites are man-made caves. You'll be walking around and suddenly you'll come across a sign and a hole dropping down into the ground. You walk down a steep spiral staircase to find yourself in a room. Some have pillars supporting the roof, and all the walls are painted with black and red patterns and stylized human figures. Some have pottery strewn around the floor as well. They are thought to be tombs, and there are over a hundred dotted around the valley. They were built between 600 and 900 AD, and they were abandoned by the time the Spanish arrived. A short walk up the side of the valley brings you to another site, where some weathered statues can be found. Most of these seem to depict humans. There is a small museum in the village where some artefacts can be seen. I remarked to the man there about the lack of visitors, and I asked him how many people came here. One or two a month, he said, if that. This was partly because not many people knew about the site, but it was also due to Colombia's civil conflict. Not long before, this site had been in the hands of the FARC, Colombia's left-wing guerrilla army. The next day I took the bus back to Popajan, passing through the town of Inza once again. A few months later, the FARC detonated a car bomb outside Inza's police station and followed this up by firing mortars. My bus had stopped right outside that police station to drop passengers off. Eight people were killed, five of whom were soldiers and one a policeman. 
I thought of those soldiers who had joked with me about fish and ships and wondered if any of them had been present. For me, this really sums up the tragedy of Colombia. It is home to such friendly, welcoming people, as well as such natural beauty and historic richness. On the other hand, it's a place where police stations have walls of sandbags and gun turrets defending them. Despite this, it really is my favourite country in Latin America. We will, of course, cover the Colombian conflict in detail when we reach the 20th century. I wish I could provide you with more information about Tierra Dentro, but as I said earlier, we don't really know anything. All I can really do is describe what's there. The second site is at San Agustin itself. This too is located within some of the most beautiful mountainous scenery you will ever see. While still off the beaten track, this one is much more visited. If the main attraction of Tierra Dentro is its tombs, people come to San Agustin to see the statues. There are three main groups of them close to town, but there are hundreds more scattered across a large area. As a whole, this is thought to be the world's largest necropolis. The statues were erected throughout the first millennium AD. There are over 600 of them in total. There are also many burial mounds. Some of these can be up to 30 metres in diameter. There is also a curious carved riverbed. The rocks which a small river flows over have been worked by the San Augustin people. There are faces, pools and even seats carved into it. The statues depict human and animal figures and they were used to mark the graves of high-status people. They vary in size, but the biggest is 7 metres high. Again, this is pretty much all I can tell you about the site. We know next to nothing about the people who made it. We can say that they must have placed a great importance on death and burial. They left behind all these tombs and burial sites, but we're yet to find any sites where they actually lived. As they had disappeared by the time the Spanish arrived, they could not provide us with any accounts either. For now, these people remain shrouded in mystery. There were, and are of course, many other ethnic groups in Colombia and Venezuela. I cannot, however, provide descriptions of all of them. The three which I have described were the most developed in the region. Let us then move on to the Caribbean. Much of the Caribbean is inhabited by the Arawak peoples. The Arawak are an ethno-linguistic group made up of many distantly related cultures. There is one group called the Wayu, for example, found in the Guajira Peninsula at the very top of Colombia and Venezuela. The Arawak are in fact probably one of the most scattered macroethnic groups in the world. They can be found in every country in South America except Chile, Uruguay and Ecuador. They can be found in small numbers in Central America as well. They show up everywhere from deep in the Amazon jungle to the savannas of Brazil. They can be found in the high mountains of Peru, and some people believe they even made it through the Caribbean all the way up to South Carolina in the United States. The ones that settled in the Caribbean became known as the Taino. They probably left from Venezuela and island hopped all the way up to the large islands of Cuba, Puerto Rico and Hispaniola. Some, however, stayed behind. There are still closely related Ararat groups in Venezuela, Suriname, the Guyanas. Those that left for the islands may have started to migrate around 2,500 years ago. 
I have, however, read conflicting opinions about this. Some people believe they moved much later. Once settled, they created small tribal chiefdoms, ruled by caciques. These, along with a small noble class, and the priests, formed the top of Taino society. Their villages were built around central plazas. These were communal spaces used by everybody. They lived in round huts which faced into the central plaza, although the nobility lived in rectangular ones. These huts were quite large, and each one would have been shared by many families. The Taino are often divided into three groups by academics. The islands of Hispaniola and Puerto Rico are considered their heartland, and the people here were known as the classic Taino. Their own creation myth says that they emerged from caves on the island of Hispaniola. This is where the largest and most organised chieftains were. The western Taino lived on Cuba, Jamaica and in the Bahamas. The eastern group lived on the small islands of the northeastern Caribbean. Being thus separated by water, there was quite a variety in Taino culture. Each chieftain would have had its own local attributes. Rather than being seen as one monolithic cultural block, they should in fact be seen on a spectrum. That said, they can all be seen as distinctly Taino. It is not clear how much coordination there was between different groups. It's possible that there were grand caciques who ruled over confederations of tribes. These would have been fairly decentralised, however. Each sub-cacique, in control of his own tribe, would have had plenty of autonomy. The confederations would have been held together by the personal charisma and power of the grand cacique. If a tribal leader thought that his people might be better off jumping ship, they could do so, they might join another confederation, or go it alone. The caciques used a matrilineal form of succession. A Spanish observer in the 15th century noted that ideally, the firstborn son of the dead chief's elder sister would be the one to inherit. If this was not possible, it would go to the next eldest sister's son. If the chief had no sisters, or his sisters had no sons, it would go to his oldest brother. It was only if this was not possible that it would go to his son. As even the caciques lived in wooden huts, the Taino did not leave behind stone ruins. There is, however, one exception, the Bate court. Like the Mesoamericans, the Taino played some kind of ball game, and their pitches were marked out by standing stones. It's unknown if there was a relationship between these two games. As the Caribbean is in close proximity to Mesoamerica, it's definitely possible that the fact that they both had board games was not a coincidence. We cannot, however, say this for certain. I have seen it proposed that the Taino may have in fact originated in Mexico, in which case they would have brought the ball game with them. Due to the cultural similarities with the Arawak of North and South America, however, I don't think this is likely. Bate was played with rubber balls, and by two teams of varying numbers. The ball was hit with your head, shoulders, elbows or knees. Using your hand was not allowed. The aim was to get the ball back to your opponent without it touching the ground or going out of the court. It seems then to have resembled volleyball. There was a great fanfare around the matches. Different chiefdoms would play each other, and they'd meet several days before to feast. During this time they would drink, tell stories and sing songs together. It seems these events were important diplomatic occasions. 
It could have been a way of strengthening ties, settling disputes, or it may have had some religious significance. Around the courts, although not limited to these sites, we found many carvings and petroglyphs. They are also commonly found carved into riverbeds and in caves. We do know a little about their religion. We know their priests used a hallucinogenic drug called Gohobana as part of their rituals. Singing was also important. Theirs was a polytheistic religion, and they believed that the spirits of the dead could visit the human world. Their gods were known as the Semi, and they carved statues of them out of wood and stone. These statues were believed to have supernatural powers. They formed part of a large exchange system which we do not fully understand. Some were traded across large distances, whereas others stayed within a small geographical area. Sometimes they were exchanged between families to secure a marriage. Other times they were used by caciques to strengthen diplomatic ties. Sometimes they were even stolen. The Tainos spread out across most of the Caribbean, but they were not the first people to arrive there. When the Spanish arrived, a small group called the Guanatabe were living in western Cuba. These people are thought to be the descendants of the first Caribbeans. They are said to have lived as hunter-gatherers, not living in villages or practicing agriculture. They may have been displaced from the rest of the Caribbean by the Taino. Soon after the Spanish arrived, they disappeared. They may have been hunted to extinction or integrated into the general mestizo society. Because of this, and because they left little archaeology behind, there's not much more I can tell you about them. When the Spanish arrived, they found a third large group living in the Caribbean. These were the Caribs, who gave their name to the region. Like the Taino, they came from South America, and in around 1200 AD, they started to invade the southern Caribbean. They originated in the jungles of South America's north coast. They occupied the area between the mouths of the Amazon River in Brazil and the Orinoco in Venezuela. This puts their heartlands in today's Suriname and the Guyanas. Today there are still several Carib groups in the area, although their numbers are small and their language is dying out. During their migration, they quickly displaced the Taino from the islands of the Lesser Antilles. In the process, they gained a reputation for being fierce and warlike. After taking over the islands of the southern Caribbean, they continued to raid the Taino, destroying their villages and carrying off their goods and women. They were also said to be cannibals, indulging in the practice as part of their religious rituals. The English word cannibal is actually a corruption of carib, or caribna, another name by which they went. The Spanish claimed that this was an everyday practice, but they may have been exaggerating in order to justify their conquests. According to a law created by the Spanish queen Isabella, it was legal to confiscate the lands of natives if it was thought that, quote, they would be better off under our rule. The thinking behind this was that if a people were particularly savage, enslaving them would actually be for their own good. Of course, it's very easy for us today to pick holes in this, but at the time, Isabella may have thought that she was actually doing good for these people. For many of the Spanish who went to colonise the Caribbean, however, ideas of doing good were far from their mind. They wanted land, and people to work that land. This gave them a motivation to exaggerate practices such as cannibalism, or even to completely make them up. Some historians even go as far as to say that the Caribs were not cannibals at all. I think they probably were, 
but the practice was very limited and only happened during specific religious rituals. Unlike the Taino, who used small canoes to get around, the Caribs built massive war canoes that could carry scores of people. These also had room to carry the goods raided from the Taino villages. They had a patriarchal society with strict gender rules and gender-segregated housing. They also lived in small family groups, each with its own leader. It's likely that these leaders would come together to form some kind of council. This would make the important decisions. Despite their antagonistic relationship, the Caribs were culturally very influenced by the Taino. Carib men would often marry the Taino women they had captured. This is probably why Carib culture adopted many Taino elements. Their cuisine was very similar, as was their religion. This was polytheistic, and they used tobacco as part of their rituals. Shamans occupied a very special place in Carib society. They were the only ones who could fight off the evil spirits threatening the human world. Caribs also appear to have held their ancestors in high esteem. The bones of dead family members were kept in their houses. Central America, the Caribbean, and the north coast of South America was a very interesting and diverse place. It is also very understudied. Colombia in particular was home to some fascinating civilizations, and there's a lot more to learn about them. It appears that peace may finally be coming to the country. If so, this will open up many new opportunities to learn about its historic peoples. I hope these episodes have given you an idea of the lay of the land in this region, and that you have learned something about the achievements of its people. Next time we'll move on to the Amazon. Until then, thanks for listening. ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call clickgranger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.